Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And hello from your two hosts in one place. Hey! So this is very fun. This is now the um, second episode that we've ever recorded where we're able to look at each other. It's weird. It is weird. It's less weird this time because I'm across from you and not next to you like we did last time. (laughs) That was weirder. Yeah. We've learned. Um, Also fun is shouting out new Patreon friends. Uh, so thank you, Beth, for joining us. Thank you. Over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and for supporting the show. Yeah. And along the same lines, thank you, Melanie, for sponsoring this episode. And Melanie wrote, quote, I'm very much enjoying the show so far. Thank you. Thank you. And I would love to hear more about the archaeology of South America. Parentheses. By the way, thank you for doing an episode on the Amazon. It was amazing. Oh. And parentheses. Specifically, I'd like to know more about the Nazca. All of the for a general audience stuff I can find about them is about the Nazca lines, which are admittedly really cool, and how they were made by aliens, which, no thank you! End quote. Melanie, you're very correct. And we hope we satisfy some of your curiosity today with the episode we've put together. So let's get into it. Let's. Let's. Spelled with an S. Or a Z. Let's. <laughs> well, Nazca culture, which you'll see spelled with either an S or a Z, depending on your source. But as I found, archaeological texts usually use an S. Flourished on the coastal plain of southern Peru between 100 BCE, although the early stages are sometimes referred to as proto Nazca, so you'll also sometimes see a start date of 200 BCE. So they were, they were getting going. It was a slow run up um, to around 750 to, or 800 CE. So remember, these stages are based on much later analysis of material culture by archaeologists, so it's a a wobbly set of categories. The Nazca people lived along the Nazca River, or Rio Grande de Nazca, dispersed in settlements of various sizes along its length. The main capital, and I did air quotes there, or at least the most important religious center, seems to have been the city of Cahuachi, and we'll get to why I'm being cagey about the term capital in a minute. In the archaeological sequence, the Nazca are preceded by a culture known as the Paracas, who were known for very intricate, complex textiles that were preserved because of the local arid climate, which is very cool. So you can see some of these beautiful textiles in museums in various places. The Nazca also have a complex textile tradition, which focuses a lot on geometric shapes and stylized figures, a trend which, as we'll discuss later, carries over into some of their more famous creations, the Nazca Lions. But the Nazca people were up to way more than creating giant line shapes in the desert. Another project that would, like the Nazca lines, have required a lot of people and organization was a system of underground aqueducts called puquillos that carried water throughout the Nazca settlements for crop irrigation and other more domestic purposes, like cisterns, things like that. So I'm going to read to you now from an article by Katharina Schreiber, published in the journal Latin American Antiquity in 1995, titled The Puquillos of Nazca. 
And inevitably, we open the scene from the point of view of a white guy who showed up in Peru in the 1800s to take a look around. Quote, In 1853, the young English traveler, Clements Markham, reached the Nazca Valley on his journey south from Lima. He marveled at the verdant landscape and described it as the most fertile and beautiful spot on the coast of Peru. He found it particularly notable because the Nazca Valley seemed to be one of the driest places he had seen. Not only is the Nazca region lacking in rainfall, as is typical of the Peruvian coast, but, as Markham wrote, all that nature has given it is a small water course, almost always dry. It seems ironic that the portion of the valley with the broadest expanse of arable land and in which the modern town was founded by the Spanish is also the portion of the valley in which the river is most deficient of water. Anyone accustomed to judging the availability of water in a region by the amount of rainfall or the volume of water flowing in the rivers would certainly agree that the Nazca Valley is exceptionally dry, even by Peruvian coastal standards. Yet the Nazca Valley supports a substantial modern population and supported perhaps an even larger late prehistoric population. It was the locus of major Inca and Wari occupations and was also the core region in which developed the well-known Nazca culture. How can this be possible? In Markham's words, quote, The fertility is due to the skill and industry of the ancient inhabitants. Under their care, an arid wilderness was converted into a smiling paradise, and so it has continued. This was effected by cutting deep trenches along the whole length of the valley and so far up the mountains that the present inhabitants do not know the positions of their origin. High up the valley, the main trenches, buquillos, appear, some four feet in height, roofed over and floored with stones and also with stone sides. Descending from the mountains, these covered channels separate into smaller conduits which ramify over the valley, supplying every hacienda with water all the year round and feeding the little streams which irrigate the fields and gardens. The larger buquillos are many feet below the surface, and at intervals of about 200 yards there are eyes, or ojos, or manholes by which workmen can descend and clear away obstructions. There's a a second section that I'm going to be quoting from here about Pukio function and construction from this uh, paper by Schreiber. To the best of our knowledge, 36 Pukios still function, 29 in the Nazca Valley, 2 in the Taruga Valley, and 5 in the Las Trancas Valley. All the existing Pukios are named, usually for the land they water. About one-third have Spanish names, the rest carry indigenous names. Some buquillos have been substantially altered during the last century, and numerous buquillos have been abandoned or destroyed. At this point, we cannot know the total number of buquillos that once existed, but we estimate there were at least 41, probably as many as 44, and possibly more than 50 buquillos in the past. So, hmm, speculative, but but really cool, and, and not something that um, should surprise us if we think about, again, the, the scale of uh, organization and kind of... Um, Creativity, but also directing large numbers of people that would have resulted in things like the Nazca lines, which are huge and were created mm-hmm. by lots of people. So it should be no surprise that, that other have, feats of engineering they could have, they could have um, uh, channeled some of this, in, this literally uh, yeah, this this like energy and innovation towards things to help them survive. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> so with the Bukios, when the river is flowing, 
um, and again, this happens seasonally, but this is an exceptionally dry portion of the Nazca River. But when the river is flowing, everyone has access to water. But when there's a drought or when the river flow is much reduced because of seasonal changes, then the people who control the poquillos have access to the water for irrigation. So that probably means that there was some sort of hierarchical system that dealt with who gets to use what land for crops and who gets to irrigate that land and so on. So distribution of kind of access to a really key resource, water. And so that implies a structured society. Yeah. Uh, so, so Amber, do you want to mention, there's there's somewhere else where a very similar yeah, there, there thing actually, occurs. There uh, actually are lots of places well, yeah. uh, where this is. So um, this, um, you know, I'm not saying that it is equivalent, but it sounds in terms of both, um, both in form and function, very similar to uh, fallage um, systems. So Falage, Kanat, if you're in uh, North Africa, Folgara, like these are all words for a technology that formed, one could, many have said, <laughs> in uh, what is now Iran, but others have argued uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and, and, and you so, either can believe it or you cannot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so what it is is um, you... So it follows the idea that um, water tables are sort of above bedrock. Yep. Um, on a hill, bed, the, the bedrock is higher, so the water table is higher. That checks out. <laughs> if you drop what's called a mother well um, into that, like into an aquifer or you know other water table, you have um, from there you can extend a tunnel underground that has a sloping one, um, right? Because the water has to flow, it's not. Yeah, yeah, it, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a, much of a. No, angle. but it is slightly graded. It, yeah, because and so because you are taking it down to the dry, the dry plains. You're, so you're going from sort of highlands to lowlands, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, and um, so the uh, so it has the the manholes that you were talking <laughs> about, like where you can like drop down and use it for clearing. Um, I know someone who, uh, when he was young, oh, he did. Um, his so his family um, was of uh, lower status in his community. He's he's from um, the the mountains in, in mm-hmm. Morocco, and so his family was historically tasked with clearing it. And it's very dirty, dangerous work. Is it, so, is it kind of like sort of chimney sweeps where you like small children are best for it because they're he was smaller small. and he was, nimble? He was, he was young when he was doing it, and so I think that there's there's something to be said for that. Mm. Um, and and so that was in Morocco, and so I'm um, but and I, so I'm more familiar with sort of the fallage. Yeah. Um, but it's something that allows you to take to use for irrigation and just for survival right. in spaces. And one of the main factors of its success, which um, sounds to me like it would be the same thing that would be happening here, is it is covered, it is underground, so it's not going to evaporate. So anything that evaporates has the possibility of condensing back into the tunnel, whereas if you just had an open canal... It just goes it would, off into the air. Yeah, it would just evaporate. Goodbye forever. So it's a way to... It's a more efficient mm-hmm. means of irrigation. And so it's something that is um, uh, kind of... It, it's, it's 
it's incredible, not in that it cannot be believed, but it's incredible in the sense of like, it works so well. And these have been consistently maintained in some places for centuries. Yeah. And, um, and that's, and I think that that's a very enduring testament to like human engineering capabilities. Yeah, we've we've been able to do things yeah. like this for a long time. People like talking about like Roman aqueducts and concrete and stuff, but like uh, perhaps we should be talking about like foliage irrigation. Perhaps we should um, as something that is like truly impressive. But no shade on the Romans, if any Romans. Well, it's fine. <laughs> they made very good aqueducts. They just weren't the first. Yeah. And uh, it just works uh, differently. And so um, this has come up before in our conversation with Tasha. Yes. <laughs> so that's what I was talking about. Great. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit more about Kahuachi, which is a complex of mounds. And you know, we love a mound. We love a mound. We love a mound here. Um, so researchers once thought that the site was the capital of the Nazca state, but have determined that the permanent population was quite small. They believe that it was a pilgrimage center whose population increased greatly in relation to major ceremonial events. So, like, Burning Man. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, Burning Man, Burning Mound. Oh. <laughs> so new research has suggested that 40 of the mounds were natural hills modified to appear as artificial constructions. The archaeologist, wait, she is an archaeologist. <laughs> Helene Silverman started working at Kawachi in the early eighties. CE, yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, and importantly, looked at the evidence for actual daily life in context with what was known from the time, which was known at the time from other Nazca sites. She concluded from her data and analysis that Kawachi would have functioned as a ceremonial center with a major role in state formation and urbanism. Silverman, Silverman found no evidence of inhabitants or domestic and residential structures that would have indicated that Kawachi was an urban settlement. By examining the remains of pottery, Silverman also suggested that pottery was brought to the site and broken deliberately as a part of the activities and rituals taking place at the time. The vegetal and faunal remains also have indicated that food was brought to the site and immediately consumed there, so there may have been communal feasts going on. Yep. Which is very interesting. Yep. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, that's, that's really cool because, you know, like, I often am just like, well, what about, like, the daily lives of people? You know, it's people talking about how long it took to um, look at um, daily life and, like, domestic activities and domestic spaces around the pyramids in right. Egypt. Like, it took so long to, to find, research. like, the workers' village. And, and then you found out, like, oh, people lived here. Like, this was yeah. something that you have... But here, it seems that minimal people lived there full-time. It seems like there was, like, a staff for upkeep, kind of. Yeah, and 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 so... Or, or maybe, like, a priestly Yeah, and so community. it could just be, yeah, people who happened to live there, yeah. but also it was a... A, a gathering A place. periodic, yeah. like, short-term population. Mm -hmm. Um, so, from an article on Nazca burials, <laughs> and we will get to those, so I'm not going to spoil anything by reading you the article title yet. Oh. Ooh. Oh. Oh, I looked, at the, I looked at the title. But this part is more generally relevant. 
Recent evidence suggests that politically, the Nazca people did not have a unified central government nor a capital city, which are characteristics of state-level societies, but rather were divided into a series of chiefdoms, each with its own leader, yet sharing in a common cultural tradition. The centers of these chiefdoms have yet to be determined, although the multiple tributaries of the Rio Grande de Nazca system may have formed the natural boundaries for such a division. The huge site of Cahuachi, covering 150 hectares in the Rio Nazca tributary, was once thought to be the capital because... Because it's big. Obviously, if yep. they were doing monumental things, they had to of course. have a capital with mm-hmm. a king in it. That's how it works. Exactly. It's not. But has now been identified as an empty ceremonial center. Place of empty ceremony. Oh, very, boy. Oh, that's, how, that's how you're interpreting it. <laughs> A place of pilgrimage and burial used only for ritual purposes. Habitation sites, most of them small to moderate in size, are situated on the flanks of the rivers close to the primary centers of cultivation. Like those constructed by contemporary farmers in the region, many of those houses were constructed of poles and cane matting or of wattle and daub, although stone and adobe were used where the resources permitted. Excavation of these settlements is just now beginning, so this was as of 2001, and as of yet, we know little of the daily life of the people. Yeah, and I looked further, and I didn't find much more on the habitation sites, so I guess, as of yet, we still know little of the daily life. Yes, it's ongoing. Um, So we do know that they farmed what's known as the three sisters crops, so this is maize, beans, and squash, and then a fourth sister, (laughs) a fourth sibling, peanuts. The littlest, a little peanut. Um, they also depicted fish on their ceramics. So maybe they... they They've seen too. a fish. They've seen a fish. That's, that's what I was getting yeah. at. They, saw, they know what fish look like. Dry place? Seen a fish. It's coastal. <laughs> oh, that's right. I just call that out. Yep. <laughs> and they used marine materials like sperm whale teeth, which, like granted, probably came from beach well somewhere, or maybe a trade network. Yeah. Hard to tell, but... Yeah. Um, so they exploited marine food resources as well, either Probably. directly or indirectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, later research also indicated the consumption of hallucinogenic beverages at the site. These beverages were likely made from the San Pedro cactus or Echinopsis pachanoi. Yeah. Or possibly pachanoi, like if it comes from pacha, like the Peruvian, that's a word. Pachanoi. Sure. Yeah. Echinopsis pachanoi, a common plant in the region, and one that has been detected via residue analyses on pottery at Cahuachi. A little bit more on Echinopsis pachanoi um, is that... We've has- really got to get a robot voice to put in hardware. Echinopsis pachanoi. Well, it just threw me because there's a CH. It's I know. It's a, yeah, it's a weird one. Has a long history of being used in Andean traditional medicine. Archaeological studies have found evidence of use going back 2,000 years to (laughs) moche culture. After Spanish colonizers barged in to ruin things, they tried to suppress its use. Yeah. Instead... A bunch of squares. A bunch of squares. We do not want to come to that party, and also since we're not going to be at that party, don't have that party. Yeah. We're not going, but also don't. (laughs) Yeah. Um... The practice just kind of got folded into Christianized versions of local religious practice, as shown by the Christian element in the common name San Pedro Cactus, the St. Peter Cactus. Excuse me for one moment. My cat is crying. You're fine. You're not an outdoor cat. Okay. 
The name is attributed to the belief that just as St. Peter holds the keys to heaven, the effects of the cactus allow users to reach heaven while still on earth. Amen. Next, we're going to get to those burials we mentioned. But first, like consumers of San Pedro cactus, we must reach ad while still in podcast. (laughs) It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Oh, we're back. And I bet you're still wondering what the title of that article was. Well, wait no longer. It was... Ritual Uses of Trophy Heads in Ancient Nazca Society by Donald Prue, originally published in an edited volume called Ritual Sacrifice in Ancient Peru. I've got snippets of the article here that describe the practice in the larger context of Nazca culture. Quote, The taking of heads for ritual use has a long history in the central Andes, beginning in the pre-ceramic period, which is prior to 1800 BCE, and continuing through Inca times. Almost every major culture in the long sequence for this area practiced this tradition, although each of these cultures had its own unique ceremonies and different ritual contexts in conjunction with head-taking. The Nazca culture was no exception, deriving its impetus from the earlier Paracas culture from which it was born. One of the most distinctive features of the Nazca culture is the frequent depiction of severed human heads in the ceramic and textile art. Referred to in the literature as trophy heads, these objects can be displayed either as single elements held in the hands or attached to the belts of warriors or shamans, or associated with a wide range of mythical creatures who represent spiritual forces in the society. Of all the cultures that practiced head-taking in ancient Peru, only Nazca and Paracas are known to have meticulously prepared severed heads for ritual use. Over a hundred examples of naturally mummified trophy heads have been recorded by archaeologists. So, listeners, quick warning, we're going to be describing the process of preparation here, so if you'd rather not hear that, go ahead and mash that skip button a few times. Amber has to listen to it because she's sitting across from me. That's great. I signed up for this. Each trophy head was produced in much the same manner. The head was cut from the body with a sharp obsidian knife by slicing through the neck and separating the cervical vertebrae. Then the base of the skull, including the foramen magnum and portions of the occipital bone, were broken away. The foramen magnum is the the hole in the back of the skull where your spinal cord enters and connects to your brainstem. The evidence suggests that this was done with a club or similar instrument. The brain and eyes were then removed through this opening. Oh, this is still going. 
Yep. Next, a hole was punched or drilled through the center of the forehead for insertion of a carrying rope, which was secured inside the head by a wooden toggle. Finally, the lips were pinned shut using one or two long thorns from the local horango tree. The cavity within the skull was stuffed with cloth, which in the case of specimens excavated at Chavinia in the Akari Valley contained traces of vegetable matter including maize and cactus skin. So there may have been something else going on there? It's unclear. Although the Nazca have few motifs on their pottery depicting events of everyday life, especially those implying movement or action, battle scenes are an exception. There are many examples of men engaged in hand-to-hand combat where clubs or obsidian knives are the principal weapon. So, that's what they had. That's what they used. Decapitation scenes are vividly depicted on a few choice vessels, and it's clear that one of the objectives of battle was to obtain the heads of the enemy. And so, something interesting I also found while perusing this article was that part of the Nazca ceramic tradition was something called head vessels, which were essentially ceramic substitutes for headless bodies in some Nazca burials. So if you had a a battle and you had someone who fell in battle and their head was taken, but then you wanted to to bury their remains, you'd have a ceramic version of their head so that it would be sort of a complete burial. like a whole person. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Um, The rituals, these, these, um, both these burials and the, um, ritual of creating these trophy heads were often accompanied by consumption of San Pedro cactus. So it was like a, a shamanic practice. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like being really high on cactus and doing this. Yeah. But it, I think it, if you approach it with a mindset of achieving a particular state to do this, like this is part of the act. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I don't think you'd freak out, but I, I don't know. I have no frame of reference. It's just like me the distance between like me sitting here like <laughs> low-key anxious about everything and like being in a state where like I can perform this like this practice like there's so much space between sure me and that state mm-hmm. and that's what I'm just like whoa <laughs> yeah and we know so much about these rituals and the practice of of making these trophy heads partially because we have we archaeologists have uncovered these trophy heads and so it can sort of be reverse engineered kind of what happened to it but also the rituals are depicted in the ceramic tradition as well so there's some uh, infographics this is something that um so you say like there are few motifs but the battle is an exception well it's few motifs of of everyday action so it's like there are so you so you got like your fishes there are pictures of things your patterns yeah and then but then you also have something that could be a narrative. Scene yeah, exactly. There's a battle, so mm-hmm. it's not like, it's, so it's not like how on like Greek vases you have sometimes you've got like people like weaving, which you know they're like mythological scenes. But like you've got sort of stuff happening. It's, you've got yeah, this few examples of everyday doing things. It's rather uh, iconography or symbols or. Pictures of things that would have very stylized versions of local plants and animals. So it's sort of static, except for battle scenes. Interesting. Seems that way, yeah. Cool. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about some other things um, that the Nazca made, apart from lines, also battle. Um, (laughs) But then, listeners, we promise we will talk about the Nazca lines. But first, ceramics. From an exhibit bur- blurb, not a burb, no burbs. <laughs> there, actually, burbs. there were some burbs. burbs. Yeah. Uh, from an exhibit blurb on the Harvard Peabody Museum's website, 
Adorned with vibrant hues and intricate designs, ceramic vessels made by the Nazca people are a strikingly beautiful testament to a culture that flourished along I ran out of breath. Culture that flourished along Peru's arid southern coast 2,000 years ago. Nazca artisans fashioned bowls, jars, and plates from coiled and mottled clay and painted them using 15 different mineral pigments, one of the most diverse palettes known in the Americas. That was exactly the correct way to read the blurb from the Peabody. Thanks. <laughs> um, and then from worldhistory.org... Um, no. Nazca pottery was made by hand rather than wheel thrown, mostly by the method of coiling. You make a where, snake. Where you make a, you roll out a snake and then you, you form it. And like my like like your beautiful ashtray. Amber's former career as a ceramicist. Mm-hmm. Um so you make the snake and then you spiral it up the base mm-hmm. to make the vessel and then you kinda of smooth it. Mm-hmm. So potters did use a turntable, but this was There were DJs. This was for beads. Yeah. Um, so this was for manual slow turning during the decoration process. Okay. So it was more like a painting tool. A little lazy Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sides of the vessel, both inside and out, were then thinned and smoothed by hand or using a flat stone um, as, as desired. Oh, yeah. Whatever yeah. your tool of preference was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so vessels were thin walled. And could take on a wide variety of shapes. Distinctive forms included a double spout, included double spouted containers with a single handle, and um, generally bulbous vessels with a without a flat bottom or base. I have no idea what this means, but I think it means that the they had a round bottom and it was meant to be put in a, a little uh, tripod stand or like a little like a cooking vessel where you'd like nestle it. In the cooking fire, or or it's like an amphora kind yeah, of deal. Yeah, so if it was a rounded bottom, you could possibly just like put it in the fire. Yeah, put it like in the coals, mm-hmm. or um, it could be something that would have been partially buried. Mm-hmm. That's something that that's been done to keep things cool. Yep, as you you bury it, so it's just something that wouldn't stand on its own, or it just goes <laughs> to the side. It's like a weeble. Generally, bulbous vessel. Yeah, same. <laughs> uh, bowls. Bulls beakers, plain jars, and effigy jars were also common. There were vessels in the shape of human heads. Um, Like we talked about. Yeah. So is this from burials, but also from elsewhere? Yeah, there's also just sort of uh, what I think are more objects for display and less sort of like your your everyday dinnerware, but it would be just sort of decorated with a motif of a human face. Decorated exactly the same way as the trophy head would look, though, with the... Horango thorns, like yeah. bisecting the mouth. Yeah. So clearly meant to represent the trophy head. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Just up on your shelf. Yeah, why not? Sure. Um, so besides the the vessels, and, uh, besides the, the vessels, the yeah. things that held things, there also were ceramic effigy figures, um, drums, pan pipes, and masks also produced from clay. Um, and these are generally found in various grave goods so yep. these are things that it wouldn't be a dr- it's not a functioning drum it would be the body of a drum and then skin would be stretched okay. over it okay. to make the the head of so the drum the, okay yep. what's the rest of the drum called that's not the, the head bo- i guess the body you're the musician here um, i'm not a drummer <laughs> you're a musician you musician um so nazca pottery vessels um 
were decorated with a slip before firing to produce a wide array of vividly rendered patterns. There's a note here for me to explain what a slip is. That's what you wear when you're wearing a dress that is sort Amber. of translucent. Amber. And you don't want to be able to see your legs through it, so you wear a slip and it makes it opaque. Great. If you don't want to see a ceramic vessel's legs, though, what do you do? Um, slip is, uh, it isn't a glaze. It's basically watered down clay, right? It is, yeah. So it isn't a glaze, so it, when it fires, it, it doesn't it doesn't get like, it doesn't change color and become pretty and shiny the way that a glaze would, where it's sort of kind of glassy. Mm-hmm. Um, but a slip is um, a, it can be the same clay that the vessel is made out of, or it can be a different clay. And so it is thinner. It's watered down, as Anna said, and it's something you put on the exterior. So it's something that um, can change some of the qualities of it. Change it gets color. less porous. Yeah, it can sort of seal it. It can make it prettier. Mm-hmm. Um, it can change the texture. But that's what a slip is. So it's something that you put on between, put on after you have um, air dried it before you fire it. Um, that has that generally has a functional role in the way that a glaze often has a decorative role. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> cool. Um, specific real people and events are never represented in Nazca art, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, we um, all, as far as we know. Rather, vessels are decorated with an endless variety of unspecific images of gods. Just like... Gods? Gods being like... Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, people, so... At, like abstract sort of stylized people, more women than men, and most often just faces, just yep. lady faces, just lady faces. Hello, like a like a blouse from Mod Cloth. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sponsored by Mod Cloth, sure but we could aren't. be. <laughs> um, shamanic imagery in various anthropomorphic transformational stages. Wow, yeah, it's a powerful phrase. Um, crustaceans, killer whales. Mm-hmm. Um, condors, not condors, orcas, orcas. Yeah, orcas. Yep. Yeah, orcas, not like humpback whales. On a spree. On a spree. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, condors and other predatory birds. Uh, we got the burbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, monkeys, lizards, insects, trophy heads, uh, decapitated victims. So the rest of the rest of them the rest of them and mythical transformational creatures especially felines which are highly stylized but almost always recognizable via their whiskered mouths staring eyes achieved by painting the iris all around the pupil in stark white are another typical andean feature which most scholars believe depicts a drug induced trance state so like in cartoons when someone accidentally ingests drugs and then you see their oh, eyes the go spiral. Boom. oh that was like the yeah <laughs> um, so sometimes the navel so tell them the belly button on figures is represented as an eye and may also represent a shamanic blending of the senses it turns out that's where our third eye is it's the tom tom it's in the tom that makes sense sure um, maroon, light purple, and blue-gray. Oh, nice. It's a nice palette. Oh. Were a favorite choice of colors, but a very wide range was used, more in fact, than in any other ancient Indian culture, as the Peabody uh, let us know. Yeah, but they uh, they cited, I think, 14 colors. So, in this, so says, other sources say up to 12 colors yeah. uh, were made from mixing water with mineral pigments, such as manganese <laughs> for black and iron oxide for red. So backgrounds were usually in white, brown, red, or black. 
Often figures and um, colored areas are outlined with a black line that never varies in thickness, like a like a cartoon. Yeah, like an Just outlined. Like a, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this article calls it another example of the Nazca delight in linear design. These Nazcans love they lines. love a line. Um, after firing, a final polishing gave the colors a bright and glossy shine. So it's called burnishing. Yeah. And so uh, take a look, Google some Nazca pottery, because it really is like very bright, shiny, like really pleasing, matte and glossy colors. Mm. It's just really nice to look at. Mm. Yeah. It's mm. Good stuff. That sounds great. Um, so we'll have a link in the show notes to an article called uh, Nazca Ceramic Iconography, an overview. Uh, and so if that's... If those three words are three words that you love to see, if together, that makes your heart go pitter pat, um, you, go ahead, dive in, dive in, get but in we'll there. We'll leave the ceramics for now, um, and so we're going to take another quick ad break, um, and then when we come back, um, I hear there's some lines. Yeah, we'll get to some lines. Talking about some lines. Yeah, everyone keeps talking about them. I feel like we should at oh, least delight oh. in linear design. So love a line. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. And now... The Nazca Lines. Delightful. We're going to start with perhaps the oldest and also most recent uh, of these geoglyphs since it was only rediscovered in 2020. So it is very old, but also recently rediscovered. See what I did there? Wow. So this is dated to between 200 and 100 BCE. So if you remember what I said, I don't know, 35 minutes ago, um, there was sort of a proto-Nazca and then the Nazca around that time. So this might even predate the actual Nazca civilization. So is this even a Nazca line? I don't know. So they didn't invent the lines. They did not. That's what I'm hearing. They did not. But they, it's named for them, much like other things are named for people who got there later. Sure. So the, this particular geoglyph is thought to be older than any others previously discovered in the region. Workers identified the etching while remodeling a portion of the Nazca Line's UNESCO World Heritage Site. The design is thought to be of a cat, carved into a hillside some 250 miles southeast of Lima, Peru. Other Nazca Lines depict animals including orcas, monkeys, hummingbirds, and spiders, as well as geometric shapes and humanoid figures. So the designs themselves were believed to have been created when the ancient Peruvians, Nazca or otherwise, scraped off the dark sort of upper layer of earth and uh, that contrasts with the next layer down which is a lighter colored sand so researchers believe that the figures once served as travel markers but uh, we're not really going to get into kind of uh, the 
interpretations of the Nazca lines, but you may know, listeners, already that it gets into some weird, weird territory. So travel markers, sure, we'll take it. Drone photography has led to several discoveries in recent years. In 2019, researchers from Japan, aided by satellite photography and three-dimensional imaging, unearthed more than 140 new geoglyphs at the site. Among all of these geoglyphs, there are several species depicted, mostly birds, that are definitely not local. The people living around where the Nazca lines were made would not have seen these birds around them from day to day. So this is really cool. So in a study published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, jazz, a team of archaeologists reported the identification of four of the Nazca line's 16 carvings of birds. Curiously, none of the four, which include a rainforest-dwelling hermit, a tropical parrot, and two coastal pelicans, are native to the arid landscape where their depictions are found. And I will say, and we'll get into how they determined what these birds were, but they're very stylized, the Nazca lines, so... Mm -hmm. You know, take this with a grain of salt, but it's still very interesting. The new study isn't the first to attempt to break the anonymity of the Nazca Lines birds, which appear to outnumber other animals in the glyphs. But before now, most researchers had based their designations on just a handful of traits. Study author Masaki Eda, a zooarchaeologist at the Hokkaido University Museum in Japan, uh, said in a statement that he and his team took an ornithological approach, analyzing the bills, necks, tails, wings, and feet of each bird and comparing their shapes and relative lengths to those of species known to frequent Peruvian skies. Though several of the etchings bore at least a passing resemblance to a modern species, the researchers were able to assign names to just four. Two seem to be pelicans in the Pelicanidae family, Mm. which are native to the Peruvian coasts. One is a probable hermit in the Phaethornithinae subfamily, goodness gracious, There's a type of tropical hummingbird found in northern and eastern Peru, and another appears to be a juvenile in the parrot family, like those found in the country's rainforests. None of these birds would have had much business pecking around a desert, but um, the regions that they're found in were all likely pre-Incan travel destinations. So it's like, come to this place, see the pelican. (laughs) You know, like those posters, like, greetings from sunny Nazca line. Yeah, it's like... Um, yeah, like Pan-Andean Airways. Yeah. Come see the birds. We've got baby parrots. So it's still unclear why the Nazca lines were drawn, though purposes ranging from astronomical to agricultural have been proposed. But no matter the impetus, researchers are confident that the design and execution of these extraordinary etchings were no small feats. I mean, literally, they're not small. These are huge. Yeah. Ancient Peruvians yeah, would have kind of hard to get your head around. Yeah, large. Yeah. It's very yeah, they're very big. Ancient Peruvians would have had to haul away layers of rocks and earth to reveal the light-colored sands below. So it's not just like scratching your toe in the sand at the beach. This is a huge-scale project. So these birds, wherever they hailed from, must have signified something pretty special to warrant that much effort. But human effort, correct. It had nothing to do with aliens, no matter what Eric Von Daniken or people on the website Gaia.com want you to believe. Um, and so they're in the show notes. Um, there is a 20, uh, we'll link to a 2017 essay written by Christopher Heaney. Um, in the, on the, for the Atlantic. In the, yeah, in the Atlantic, uh, titled The Racism Behind Alien Mummy Hoaxes. Um, and so this is something that uh, Melanie, the sponsor of this episode, sort of alluded to in talking about how things the, are 
people want to say that things are the responsibility of aliens. Yeah, some sort of um, interstellar beings. And, but- and so one of the things that's used as evidence for this are these mummies and, and these modified crania, but also just mummies sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so this article, the, the essay is really good and it's something that, um, many aspects of it we've touched on before, but I recommend you read it from this particular perspective, uh, because it's something that, uh, what Heaney does really well is talks about how, um, the, early scientific so this is informed by scientific racism and racial science Mm -hmm. and so the early research into these things um has like is informed by and informs the belief that um is something that stephen jay gould talks about in the mismeasure of man which great book which yeah great book um which is something that um, i think rachel watkins said that that's what yeah, like inspired yeah, yeah. her mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. like think about this more um, as as this belief that non-European bodies are not human. They aren't fully human. That to be fully human is to be European. And so um, indigenous bodies, non-European bodies are... Must be aliens. ...are um, incomplete or like alt-human or not quite human. And so it is not a far walk to take to go from non this non-European body is less human to this non-European body must, especially if it is, is associated with something that has taken considerable skill, um, engineering mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, well, if it's not human... It must be something other than human. Right, and it must have been influenced by outside sources. Yeah, and so um, racial science and racism pervades all of this and undergirds it. So Just because of the way that this science developed. Exactly. And and among whom it developed. Yeah, and so um, if you are, if you give credence to these ideas of like ancient visitors, ancient interstellar beings, ancient aliens, ancient astronauts, like all of those things, um, no matter where you come at it from, like no matter how you get there, by engaging with it, what you are doing is giving a platform for and and giving air to the flames of racism, Mm -hmm. like pure and simple. And there was, um, I think, a Swiss guy who talked about ancient Peruvians and um, described them as uh, related to marsupials, like no. akin to marsupials. And so there is wow. a there is a long and story tradition of finding ways to dehumanize. dehumanize, and like, like, and and so that's something that not to dehumanize in the way that you that one may think of in a kind of like a social sense. No, literally but, to say this but species, to, but to is categorize different. them as a different species. Yes, that's what's bad about all this. It's not that it's like silly. It's not that it's just factually wrong. It's that it is harmful. Yeah, and that's why we we take exception and and try to sort of call it out whenever we find yeah. it. Because it's not just like a fun a fun silly thing. It's not like just goof. It it actually has um, repercussions that Still. can be that yeah that that translate into violence done against non-European 
people. Mm-hmm. And their material culture and the remains of their relatives. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So what happened to the Nazca? It seems that from the archaeological record that environmental factors were largely the reason, helped along by the Nazca people's intensifying farming efforts, which destroyed some of the local plants that helped keep the ecosystem in check. So one of those plants is the horongo tree, which is the one that produces the thorns that people use to like suture the lips of a trophy head. And they're long thorns, like like pinky length. Wow. <laughs> I'm wiggling my pinky at Amber. And just so the listener knows, Anna has an average length pinky. Yeah. I, so yeah, regular. Look at your pinky. That's how I don't long. Know. Yeah. Two and a half inches. Okay. Sure. Um, a member of the Prosopis family. Sure. Warangos are massive, slow-growing trees with roots that extend 180 feet deep. That, I think, would be a great name for an SUV. Instead of... Durango? No, I'm saying instead of names for, like, the names of, like, indigenous communities. Oh! The trees. The Toyota Horango. Right? Nice. That sounds sounds rugged, yeah. Yeah, that sounds... Get at us, Toyota. (laughs) The trees, a relative of mesquite, that can live for more than 1,000 years, have dense wood that is ideal for construction and fuel. Uh Uh-oh. Their pods can be ground into flour and used to produce beer. Mm, What a tree. Sounds like a great tree. Um, The remains of its seeds and pods are frequently found in coprolites, which are... Poops. Yep, poops. Um, Fossilized human. I mean, not always human, but fossilized. Fossilized poops. Yep. Um... The trees also trap water from the morning mist that waft in from the Pacific. Gosh, that's nice. In large part because of the Horongo, the Nazca flourished for 500 years. Because they had these trees taking care of them. What a great resource. What a giving tree. Here is beer. Here is flower. We all have a giving tree. I know, it's the worst book. Excavations of middens show the remains of marine mollusks and fish from the ocean which was only about 15 miles away. Preserved pollen is virtually only from harangos and some weeds. So no Not a deliberate of, agriculture yeah. of like uh, managing of plants. It seems like they were not hunter-gatherers because they were in the same place. It, yeah. They weren't very mobile, but they were... Just, they were just like sedentary in a resource-rich environment? Yeah. yeah. Um, Thank you for... I was just like, words! Oh, no! <laughs> um. So coinciding with the early rise of the civilization, how and the civilization is a hinky word. So yeah, just, so like more urbanized populations, and, and so higher the, density of people. Yeah, and and sort of the um, elaboration of the rituals and things mm-hmm. that would have happened at, at so more social structure, more yeah. hierarchy, etc. So the archaeological team began to find pollen from cotton. Mm-hmm. And the amount of pollen from Irangos began to decline. Because yeah, remember, there's a lot of textile work in yeah. this region. Yeah, so oh, cotton, not mm-hmm. like not wool? No, I don't think so. I think okay. it's um, plant-based okay. uh, fabrics. So like cactus and cotton. Yeah, I think so. Nice. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to look uh, more deeply into the textile stuff, but it was really interesting. I, yeah. I didn't let myself go down that hole because I'm like, God, finish the script. <laughs> <laughs> Around 400, so um, dates aren't precise because the sediments haven't been radiocarbon dating, so around 400. Yeah, sure. The Nazca apparently stopped growing cotton and began producing large quantities of maize, squash, beans, and other foods. Peanuts. 
Don't forget the peanuts. And the peanuts. <laughs> Pollen from the wrong ghosts dropped off sharply, indicating that they had cut down most of the trees, either to use the wood or to clear the land for agriculture. Uh-oh. And also thinking about if a tree lives for a thousand years, that also means that that tree does not grow quickly. Nope. Sure doesn't. So they, they are not a renewable resource in the same way that bamboo. Yeah. Is a renewable resource. What you're saying is the Nazca should have used bamboo. Should have planted some bamboo. <laughs> yeah, that's my like mid early oddies like Jezebel commenter. Like you should have eaten beans. Like, <laughs> clueless. Like, <sighs> <laughs> ma'am, ma'am. Just patronizing the past. That's my new show. Mm. <laughs> you, you tried. Um, so it went fine. For a bit. For a bit. But then around 500, a massive El Nino system event built up in the Pacific. So um, El Nino, La Nina are uh, seasonal, are sort of annual seasonal events that have like huge impacts in terms of um, distribution of rainfall and temperatures. It's basically a, a storm system, but a big it's, one. It's one that like lasts for months. Yeah. It's a, yep. Um I did a report on El Nino, I think in fourth grade mm. for my gifted class, because mm-hmm. I think that that was when there was a big El Nino Yeah, event. I remember it too. I was in fifth and grade, I think. I would have been in third grade then. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah that was then. I think fourth grade was when I did Nikola Tesla. <laughs> wow. All the, all the top hits. Yeah. Um, so this was around 500. Uh, this is the massive El Nino event that Anna and I remember uh, that built up in the Pacific. Wait, um, no, not this one. This, no. this one, this very one. No. Uh, my bones suggest. <laughs> I'm 500 was, years old. It delivered huge amounts of rain to the nearby Andes. So the rain created floods that washed walls of water and mud down the valley and and over the denuded landscape. Um <laughs> No more trees. Sweeping away the maize and other food crops along with buildings and other artifacts. Yup. So um, catastrophic flooding that... um, Mudslides. And and like El Nino happens sort of like like in a scale of decades. It happens infrequently. Oh, you mean it's like periodicity. Yeah, it happens um, periodically but infrequently. And so um, El Nino is... You wouldn't be expecting it. El Nino is El Nino is the rainy one, and La Nina is the dry one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so El Nino um, has its name because it usually, when it arrives, it arrives um, around the end of the calendar year. Um, so around the time of the arrival of the new the year, Christ child, the new baby. Well, it comes around Christmas. Okay, that's why it was called that. Um, I remember this from my report in third grade. <laughs> All righty. Um, so um, after that flood, uh, that sort of the big series of floods, yep. other researchers have shown the, the Nazca civilization fragmented and warfare became more common, which... Depictions of battles. Would, mm. But, but like makes sense yeah. that you would have um, huge damage to your resources and a lot of instability there. Um, and so life expectancy fell and infant mortality rose. Uh, then we have, we, we can surmise this from data from burials. Yeah, so when, when you see the, a burial pattern where the age at death starts to drop off, you see younger and younger people being buried, then that indicates something about other factors besides just dying. Yeah. 
And so eventually the Wari people came down from the nearby mountains, and one could say they conquered Subsumed. the remnants of the Nazca. Um, others could say they just incorporated yep. because um, there are people who, there's people, people move and people shift. Mm-hmm. But the, the remaining population that 100 years ago we would have attributed to the Nazca were incorporated into the Wari. Yeah. So, of course, there's lots more to the story than that. We've only touched on the highlights here. And if you want to learn more, listeners, you can start by diving into the articles linked on our show notes. But there's still a lot to learn about the Nazca. Like, information about the Nazca is sort of thinner on the ground than about many of the other kind of groups in that area. Mm -hmm. So there's still some things to learn. But that's going to do it for this episode. And Melanie, thanks again for sponsoring the topic. We hope we brought you some new information. Something. Yeah. Hope something surprised you. Yeah. And so we'll be back in your ears, both Melanie and everyone else, uh, with something new and old. Hey. Which you can find on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Audible, and wherever else you get your podcasts out there. Yep. And if you miss us before then, you can head over to thedirtpod.com where we have all of our back episodes, merch, and more. And you can find us on social media where we post archaeological news stories, fun upcoming events, Jokes, pod updates, more. Podo. On Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Thanks, everybody. And happy third birthday to us. Happy third birthday. Thank you, everyone, so much for staying with us for for all this time. Three whole years. This is like... Solar years. We're like 90 in podcast years. Oh, my God. (laughs) We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.